0: This morning I invite you to turn in your Bibles the book of Jeremiah. We're going to be reading a lengthy section again this morning. Jeremiah chapter 15 and chapter 16 to verse 13. So a little over a chapter and a half of Jeremiah. And I invite you to follow along as I read in the New King James Version. God's Word declares in Jeremiah chapter 15 and 16... Then the Lord said to me, even as Mo- if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be if they say to you, where shall we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord, such as for death to death. And such as are for the sword to the sword. And such as are for the famine to the famine. And such as are for the captivity to the captivity. I will point over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble, to all kingdoms of the earth, because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will bemoan you? Or who will turn aside to ask how you are doing. You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary of relenting. And I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. I will breathe them of children. I will destroy my people, since they do not return from their ways. Their widows will be increased to me more than the sand of the seas. I will bring against them Against the mother of the young men, a plunder at noonday. I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them suddenly. She languishes, who has borne seven. She has breathed her last. Her son has gone down. While it was yet day, she has been ashamed and confounded. And the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Lord. Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me. A man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. The Lord said, Surely it will be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity and the time of affliction. Can anyone break iron, the northern iron and the bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as plunder without price because of all your sins throughout your territories. And I'll make you cross over with your enemies into the land which you do not know, for a fire is kindled in my anger which shall burn upon you. O Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your enduring patience do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have... Suffered rebuke. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream, as waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me if you take out the precious from the vial. You shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them, and their fathers who begot them in this land. They shall die gruesome deaths, they shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. For thus says the Lord, Do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them, for I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land, they shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them, to comfort them for the dead, nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. Also you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold! I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And it shall be when you show this people all these words, and they say to you, Why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They have walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. Therefore I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers. And there you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not Show you favor. I had not tested my voice since being ill till this morning's Sunday school. And I knew I was in trouble as soon as I got to the E in the B I B L E. So I didn't get much farther past that. And that's always Eleanor's first song she always picks to sing. And so I didn't get very far before I realized I was going to be in trouble this morning. So, if you'll bear patiently, I'll try not to um, press my voice too much. And so, you'll just have to listen quietly this morning. And we come into a somewhat somber passage. So, maybe the voice is going to work out all right. We come to a portion of Jeremiah that is not something we like to read. In fact, this is one of those passages that makes us almost want to interrupt a study of a book like this and say, I'll come back to it later. I need something else after this. And this is something I warned you of at the beginning of this study, is that we are going to have periods of time where there is going to be some very challenging material. And this is why very few pastors will preach through an entire study of Jeremiah, Um, for that very reason, is that most of us aren't capable of really being able to sit through it for week after week and willing to listen to this. Um, We have been convinced by the world that everything that is worthwhile should be entertaining. And generally in our world that entertainment has become making me laugh. Of course, historically in the entertainment world, that was only half of what they considered entertainment. And uh, they are, and so you have just as many or more tragedies that Shakespeare wrote than he wrote comedies. Um, but those are not uh, well received anymore, really. Um, and we find that we have tried to use uh, that same attitude towards God's word, that if it's not something encouraging and uplifting and, and that it therefore is not strengthening and edifying, that it is not, Of greater benefit if it makes me go hmm in a very serious manner and so we come to a portion of scripture that uh, we could easily draw away from it a lot of despair and certainly that was the case for jeremiah and we're going to see it right out of his own words for one verse um, basically saying i wish i had never been born Um, But while we are doing this for this study series, which will last a little over a year, um, well, it'll be closer to two years, Um, I want to remind you that this was Jeremiah's message for 40 years. And while we have seen some hopefulness raise its head here and again, we have also recognized that that hopefulness is well off in the distance it is really for another generation. It is for uh, a very small minority of, it, of Judah to enjoy. And it is something that uh, Jeremiah has difficulty understanding and remembering in the midst of all of the sorrow that he is called upon to proclaim to the people. And so we have seen why this is necessary. And God has taken the time to show Jeremiah the sinful condition of the people of Judah. And he now has to uh, press that message very harshly to the people um, by God's calling. God's called him to do that. And so we find him being obedient, even in the midst of recognizing the and beginning to really feel the effects of having to do that. Having shown Jeremiah the sinful condition of the people and just how extensive it is, we have seen him deal with what false repentance is. Remember last week, those that confess, and the words sound really good to us, sounds like well they want to get things right with God. We saw that last week, and yet God rejected them because there was no heart to it. It was all the right words, all in the right order, and but ultimately when it was all finished, the accusation was that, God, we haven't really done anything that bad that deserves this. And we find them really ending with a very nice-sounding complaint against God instead of repentance. And God says, this kind of confessional is not accepted by me. I don't receive it because there was no heart change. There was no true repentance. It was confession without repentance. That is, they had no intention of changing anything in their lives. They had no intention of turning away from the false gods, away from their harlotries and sins, to God. They wanted to have this confessional one day, and then they would be able to go out and live the same way the next day, and think that somehow God would be pleased with this. And we saw this given to us not just once in chapter 14, but twice. That they give the same kind of false confession that where they acknowledge their sin, but they never turn from it. And this is what God calls us to, not just to acknowledge that our sinfulness is there, but to turn away from it, to do otherwise, to follow him and walk in the light. And so we find this condition um, simply instead of satisfying God or pleasing God or making God less angry, it made him more angry. And we can understand that, I think, if we put ourselves in his place. Um, does it make you happier or more angry when people come with that kind of attitude that I'm going like, to say these certain words and not really mean any of it? If I'm going to come to you and say, oh, I've," you know, I'm sorry, quote-unquote, I'm sorry that I've hurt your feelings. Um, But then, not really be sorry. Because their heart isn't into it. They're just saying the words. To try to smooth things over without really making things right. And this is what angered God even more. Was the attitude that if you know you are a sinner then you should be humbling yourself, then you should be turning from that sin, then you should be you should be having sackcloth and ashes on you, you should be shaving your heads, you should be humbling yourself, and instead you have this strange complaint against me. Of course I'm not going to receive that. And of course my anger is going to persist and in fact increase. And so we come to chapter 15, and we find that that is the condition of God. He has been confronted with a religious people who confess their iniquity without turning from it, and in the midst of their confession of their iniquity, have things like this to say, um, Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? We're called by your name, why don't you save us? And that ultimately is an accusation against God. Why don't you do for me? What do we want you to do? Well, that's really not the attitude and the spirit of someone who is genuinely sorry for their sin. And so we have these individuals that are willing to say, I am a sinner. They'll go to confessional and confess it. But that is not coming into a right relationship with God. In fact, God rejects it outright. And says, I'm not going to hear them. And he tells Jeremiah, don't pray for them. Don't cry for them. Don't do anything for them. This is not the spirit that will restore them nor deliver them. And so what is left for them? And we come to verse chapter 15 and 16 we find what's left for Israel. For Judah, sorry. Uh, what is left for Judah is punishment. And God says, I'm gonna hit you four ways. And this isn't Unheard of. Um, in fact, whenever you, even when you get into the, uh, New Testament and into the, the, uh, horsemen of the church age that we find in Revelation, uh, we hear in Matthew 24, Christ's description of what's going to be like during the church age. Um, this is very similar to what we find here. He says, this is what's going to happen to you, um, by the hand of the Babylonians and you're going to, or by my hand directly. I'm going to have You die, for the most part. Three-fourths of you, if it was evenly distributed between these four modes of destruction, three-fourths of you are going to die. And we know that that is maybe generous of what we know of who survives all of this. So the people respond, instead of, what should we do, they say, where should we go? Instead of saying, what should we do to get things right with God? They simply shrug their shoulders, okay, well, where are we going to go? And he says, Well, some of you, most of you are just going to die. And so you either are going to die, die by the famine, by pestilence. Those of you who are going to die by the sword in battle, go to go go die. Um, and those of you, a few of you, are going to go into captivity. So God has appointed it. He's going to hand you over to trouble and he begins a process that takes us from a historical event to the present. And the reason we're handling such a large passage at one time is because I want you to get the two bookends. So you understand that the justice of God um, is not just about your forefathers, but about you yourself. And so he begins by taking them back to the darkest, most evil period of Judah's history. He says, the reason that this is righteous and just, and the reason this is necessary, really goes back to your forefathers, to one king particularly, and he names him. Because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. It says, this is why I have to hand you over to all the kingdoms of the earth to bring trouble in verse 4. Because of what he did in Jerusalem. And for probably many of you, you're not real familiar with Manasseh, and it's not a lot of the history we like to talk about. It is a horrific time in Jerusalem. And that would take you to 2 Kings chapter 21 to learn about Manasseh. But if you really want to know how much evil Manasseh did, you have to read chapter 22. You see, chapter 21 tells you what Manasseh did, a little bit, and then he dies, and God kills him. Um, he did some wicked things, and we're told several things in chapter 21 of Second Kings. Number one is that he sent his own son through the fire. And so he was practicing some abominable things that God did never ask for, never wanted to do it. And he didn't just do it somewhere. He did it and set it up in the temple itself. So here's the temple of the most high God, holy, holy, holy place. And he sets up these abomination of idols and does human sacrifice on them on the holy mount of God. And it says also in chapter 21 of Second Kings that Jerusalem ran, the streets ran with the blood of innocent people during his reign. And so those are kind of summary statements, but they really don't ring out the extent of what was going on during Manasseh's reign, which he, it says he led the people in it, and the people followed him. But when we get to chapter 22 of 2 Kings, if you want to turn there with me, we find a full list of just how bad it was. In chapter 22, was Josiah becomes king. He's 8 years old. By the time he's 18 years old, he is ready to clean shop. He is ready to clean up Jerusalem and Israel. Um, they have found the law of the Lord. He is going to impose it. In fact, he is going to purify it to the extreme. And before the chapter is over, he is going to institute a Passover, it says, that was only comparable to one other Passover in the history of Israel. And that was the first one. The Passover he instituted was better than anyone that had ever been practiced during Solomon, or David, or during the Judges. It was just incredible. Um, But when we start to read chapter 22, and we start seeing the reforms, we start to realize just how wicked it was. And so, let's jump ahead in chapter 22 and 23. Um, It takes a few chapters to talk about all of this and see how wicked it was. For time's sake, let's jump to chapter 23. And um, I'm just going to read a portion of this. I think I don't need to speak too much to it, but let me read a portion of this for you. Um, We'll pick up verse 4. It says, and the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven, and he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and carried their ashes to Bethel. Notice they were to empty the courtyards of the temple of all of these. Now, other kings had set up alternative sites of worship in the high places of Israel. But Manasseh does it even worse. He doesn't say you can worship God here and then go out there on those high places and worship the Baals and the Ashtoreths. No, he brings them into the temple of God. He brings the idols of the world into the church. And says, let's worship them in here. It's just too inconvenient for us to worship one God here and the other gods out there. So I'm going to bring them all in here. We're going to worship them right here. He was the ultimate syncretist. Something that's going on in this day, in this age, in churches today. We simply bring the world into the church and worship the same gods the world worships in our churches. Right alongside the name of most High. Let's keep reading. Then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the city of Judah and the places all around Jerusalem, and those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord. To The brook Kidron outside Jerusalem burned it at the brook Kidron, ground it to ashes, and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. You're going to see some disturbing activity of Josiah with regard to dead people. And there's a reason, and that's because he is desecrating all those who practice this in all these high places that once you have exposed bones that have been desecrated, it makes it a place that no one wants to worship. He's trying to prevent people from ever worshiping these false gods again, but his efforts are for naught. Again, all of this was in the house of the Lord. Look at verse 7. He tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. This is describing... Sexual activity involved in worship, which is common among the heathen, not among God's people, that included religious prostitution and even homosexual acts. Verse eighty. brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. He also broke down the high places at the gates which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. So he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire of Molech. Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord. They had set up horse images in honor of the sun gods, God of the sun, so you can't even get into the temple without having to go by the idol's that Manasseh had set up, and even some of the other kings. It gets, goes on. By the way, he burned those chariots of the sun with fire. Verse 12, the altars were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made, in the two courts of the house of the Lord, and the king broke down and pulverized there, and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem. All of these places here, is trying to keep people from false worship in all these places. They were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Shamash, the abomination of the Moabites, for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he broke in pieces and. S- "...the sacred pillars, and cut down the wooden images, and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel, and the high place, which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made both that altar and the high place, he broke down, he burned the high place, and crushed it to powder, and burned the wooden image, and Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs, and burnt them on the altar, and defiled it according to the word of the Lord." which the man of God proclaimed or proclaimed these words. It goes on, he talks more and more about the shrines and the high places and all the places that he's going to purify Israel of in an attempt to set things straight. And then they, they have this wonderful Passover feast and celebration that is honoring to God. You might, well, certainly that undoes Everything that Manasseh and the other evil kings had done, certainly that would appease God. That is an absolute demonstration of the commitment of Josiah to true repentance. And for that, I would completely agree. The problem was it wasn't shared by the priests and the prophets and the people. He was doing this unilaterally, almost exclusively. And you find some evidence along the way of the resistance that he was getting from some of the priests who would not come and serve the Lord properly. And because of this magnificent effort of Josiah, God makes him a promise. He says to him, the evil that I have to bring, the destruction I have to bring on Jerusalem will not happen while you're alive. You'll never see it. And it gets delayed. But we also find a very powerful statement here that the work of Josiah to put away all of these did not quenched the fierceness of God's wrath over Manasseh. All these things Josiah had to undo were culminated in Manasseh. This is how wicked it had become. So we get to verse 26 of 2 Kings 23 and look at it there. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my side as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said my name shall be there. God rejects her, and with Josiah's singular attempt to bring reform, Josiah, as an individual, receives this delay. He receives this interim period of blessing where God's hand is, is. Allowing him to to serve. But as soon as Josiah is out of the way, the very next thing we find is that the king turns right back to the evil, the next king. And so historically, Israel, Judah, can look and recognize the wickedness that they have bought into. And that's really what happened. They didn't buy into Josiah's reforms. They didn't accept those as their own. But they certainly accepted as their own all of the evil brought by the wicked kings. Isn't that incredible? Here are the people of God, the word of God, and the blessings of God in the land of their promise. And they are just willing, at a drop of a hat, to follow these evil kings into their perversity and evil turning their back to the Lord God who delivered them and who is guarding them, and yet when a righteous king comes, almost none will follow him. And there is a resistance to him. Oh, they subject themselves, and in this sense, Josiah becomes very much a picture of Christ in the millennial kingdom. That for a thousand years, Christ's Enforces reforms. And people all have to worship him. Well I say for a thousand years, this is going to be a wonderful place. Well, it is. And if you don't worship Jesus, when and where he tells you to, famine hits your land. So everybody conforms until Satan is let out of the bottomless pit and one Satan shows up. After a thousand years of enjoying the privilege of having Jesus as your king and earth's abundance at your disposal, with death being a rarity, says a hundred-year-old person will be considered a baby if they die. We're talking about restored lifespans. After a thousand years, Satan gets out in one day And the nations turn against Christ. Because while their mouths were saying the words, while their feet were going to the places, while they were bending the knee of their body, the heart never surrendered. And this is the condition of Judah during Josiah's reforms. And so when God says, I still remember Manasseh, and what I remembered is that all of you followed him there. And I also remember none of you followed Josiah. It didn't even last for one more generation of kings. And so back in Jeremiah 15, it says, I'm handing you over to trouble because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. You have forsaken me. You've gone backward. And verse 6 tells us that we are at the point where somewhere Josiah has passed and God now says, I am tired of waiting. The word in the New King James is relenting. I'm tired of of holding back my wrath. I've held it back for the sake of Josiah, but now I'm done doing that. Because as soon as Josiah left the scene all of his reforms were gone as well. and So the Lord says, I'm going to stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. And he describes this in terms of mothers and wives who are going to become widows and childless, who have nothing but mourning and yet they cannot mourn for there is None left. No one even there to bury people. The destruction is so extensive. And this is what Jeremiah has to deliver to the people. And he reminds it, it really goes back a couple of generations ago to Manasseh, one of your forefathers, but really all the kings. And he even stretches back in that passage in, in 2 Kings 23, all the way back to Solomon, and how he set up alternative places to accommodate his foreign wives and their gods. He says, it's really because of all your kings. But it was culminated. It is, it is personified in the work of Manasseh. Who took it from the high places out there. And brought it right into the streets of Jerusalem. Right onto the holy place. The place where it should never have been named. These things were going on. And the streets of Jerusalem were running thick with the blood of innocent people. And that's referring to children. They're slaughtering children. Right in the very place that was supposed to be holy to the Lord. So yes, God was justified and is justified. But Jeremiah understands that if Josiah's reforms could not dissuade God from this, then nothing can. Not even his own ministry. <laughs> and boy, that's devastating. And he shows it. And we pick up in Jeremiah 15, verse 10, he says, woe is my mother. We talk about all these mothers that are going to be childless, that they're going to see, they have seven children and they're all going to be gone. They're all going to be widowed. He says, woe is my mother that you born me. And here's how he describes his ministry. I'm a man of strife, a man of contention to the whole earth. I've neither lent for interest nor have men lent me to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. He has to go out there and declare this over and over and over again. And everyone hates him. They don't want to do business with him. They don't like him. And frankly, he doesn't like himself. I wish I was never born. That I have to go out on the earth and tell people that they are sinners and that there is no hope for them. There's only despair because their hearts are so far from God and built upon this heritage that they have cherished, they have nurtured, and they have brought this wickedness into the very fabric of their society that they refuse to turn away from it, even though they acknowledge it as sin. They won't stop it they will never stop. Even though they know it's wrong, they won't stop. In our day and age, we call that addicted. Because we don't like talking about being that committed to sin. It's an addiction. It's in my genetic codes. I have to sin like this. I can't help myself. Back in the day, in the 60s and 70s, the devil made me do it. Now we don't even claim that. We'll acknowledge their vices and laugh it off and say, well, what can I do? It's just who I am. I can't help myself. And the scientific community has enabled you on several fronts, first of all, by telling you you're nothing but a little bit more advanced animal through their evolutionary models and then through their psychology that you are just the product of your environment and it's somebody else's fault and so how can you possibly do anything about it? It's probably your parents' fault. You see, we acknowledge our vices but we have no intention of changing them. And we're not really sorry enough to turn away from them. We'll place blame. We'll displace blame, I should say. So Jeremiah is in this condition of confronting people over and over and over again to the point that they curse him. Because every time he shows up, that's his message. And it makes us feel bad. None of us like to feel bad every Sunday, do we? Or every time we get around the preacher... Yesterday at the garage sale. Well, why do you have to keep preaching against homosexuality? This was a man complaining about another pastor, not me. He's never heard any of my messages, as far as I know. Um, Why does he have to keep railing against them? Well, we rail against all sin. We ought to. But people don't want to hear it. He says all we should be telling people is how much God loves them. Sound familiar? And so we should rip the entire book of Jeremiah right out of our Bibles. And if you think preachers can't wait to jump up and declare messages like this, you're wrong. There are plenty of weeks that I'm like, I've got to stop preaching this stuff because they're not going to keep listening. And sometimes I go, I, I, woe is me. <laughs> Why do I have to keep preaching this stuff? There's no joy necessarily in it alone The joy comes when there's a responsiveness and a repentance and a desire to move from sin and self to righteousness and to God. That's when there's joy. But in the midst of it, when you are confronting a wicked society again and again and again with no results, with only lip service at best, and with an expectation of God's judgment, there is no thrill to get up and do that. There is this statement, woe is me, that I was born. Because all I get to do is bring strife and contention to the whole earth. To remind them that things aren't right. If we are walking our own ways, instead of the Lord's way. If we are walking according to what our forefathers said, instead of what God has said. God has a response. And remember, the book of Jeremiah is an interactive book between God, his prophet, his prophet, and the people, and the people, and God. And we have a lot of interaction in a conversational style almost throughout this book. And God comes to encourage Jeremiah to persist. Saying that there's going to be a remnant. And this is a term That is very precious in the prophets. This is a term of small portions, the remnant, the leftover. It's not 40%, most of the time it's less than 10%. It's the waste factor, the little bit left over, a sliver. This little remnant. The Lord says, the remnant will respond. The remnant will be delivered. The remnant will be my people. And here in this nation now that had become two nations, and as, and as one had gone off, Israel had gone off into captivity, and now Judah was preparing similarly to the Babylonians, we find God saying, you must persist, because it will be well with the remnant, And when the enemy comes with the remnant, the enemy will not destroy it, but preserve it. And you would all know that. You know that historically, that's exactly what happened. And this is to strengthen this prophet, this young man, to persist in this. Don't sit there and say, woe is me, I wish I didn't have to do this job. I have to go and tell people all this bad news every day. I have to go out there and point at their sin and, and point at their... Falsehood and their fake confessions and I have to go in there and, and attack a society that has given over to all of this. And God says, listen there's a remnant. Those going into captivity aren't going to be destroyed. they are going to be preserved. He said, it will be well with your remnant. I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity and the time of affliction. Yeah, you're going to lose everything, and there's going to be destruction and mayhem, but there's that sliver of people that'll listen. And it's a sliver of people that'll listen, and I'll preserve them. And Babylon, the quote-unquote enemy that's going to be doing all this destruction and bringing all this misery, is the very entity I'm going to use to preserve them and you know the story you know what happens when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego end up in Babylon you know what happens to Nehemiah you know about those guys don't you? We have those books in our Bible so we we know what happened up there with Ezra and Zerubbabel and, and all of those that went and prospered in the land to whom Jeremiah will be writing a letter by the time we get to chapter 29 saying, you're in Babylon, you're safe now. You're the remnant. But you're just a sliver. And God says, your hope is in a sliver of the people. Them I will preserve because they will trust in me. They will follow after me. And so, persist. Yes, you're going to go into captivity. Yes, there's going to be a lot of horrible things happening. And his response to this information, Jeremiah's response to it is, is, Lord, make sure I'm included. And he gives this argument in verse 15, Lord, you know, remember me. Visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors in your enduring patience. Isn't that great? God says, I'm tired of waiting. And Jeremiah says, well, you've been patient already. Um, do not take me away. Know that for, that for your sake I have suffered rebuke, your words were found. I ate them, which is a description of the willingness of the prophet to declare the whole counsel of God that he is going to consume them, that he cannot separate himself from the message. And Jeremiah is making this profession before the Lord. I will never stop preaching your truth. I have eaten your words. They are mine. I take joy in them. And I sorrow over what they mean to these people and their rebelliousness. I sorrow over that. I, I have and sometimes I get distracted by that, and I wish that that couldn't happen. but I recognize that you are just and that you're doing what's necessary, but there's also this sliver of hope in the midst of this for the very, very, very few that you'll save. Because the very few will call upon you. But I want to be one. I have called upon your name, O Lord of hosts. And look at verse 17. I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand. For you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual, my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely... Be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail. His statement is really the statement representative of all the remnant. The sliver, the sliver of the population that hears his message that are going to actually be delivered. Some of the princes, like Daniel and others, that sliver, these are their words. This is their attitude. This is their perspective. And Jeremiah associates himself with them. Their statement is is that we have loved your word. We've consumed it. We've made it our life. It defines me. It is inseparable from me, my commitment to this truth. Nothing in heaven and hell will separate me from this truth. I will walk in it. I will abide by it. I will study it. I will meditate on it. I will love it. I will teach it. I will obey it. That is one characteristic of their lives. And the second one is that they will never sit in the assembly of those who will mock it or mock the one of this book. I will not sit and listen to others. I would rather be alone on the planet than to sit and listen to these people mock my God I'd rather be alone I have sat alone I won't rejoice with their foolishness with their wickedness And you have filled me with an indignation, a righteous indignation against their sinfulness and recognizing that this is only cause for judgment and therefore I should not be a part of it. I'm going to be separate. And this is what God calls us to, to be separate from the world. Not to invite it into our living room or into our palms of our hands but to be separate. To separate ourselves from that which is the world's tool to mock God. But not only are we unwilling to sit alone, but we even rejoice in the mocking. And God again responds to this remnant. This, that's the remnant's declaration. I have consumed your word. It is who I am. I will follow it. And I will do so alone. Absolutely alone if necessary. And you can see this lived out in those men's lives in Babylon, can't you? We are going to bow to that idol. Throw us in the fiery furnace. It's okay. Wow. They'll stand alone. They will not mock God, no matter the cost. They will isolate rather than enjoy whatever the world offers them. And remember what was being offered. Just kneel to this idol. Just don't pray to your God for a while. Just eat this food. And those men took a stand. And Jeremiah is declaring, this is what the remnant will be like. This is how you recognize them. They stand alone. That's how you recognize them. They stand alone. They stand on God's word. And they're alone. God's not done. He comes to them. And this is a very personal passage for me at least. God says, if you return, I will bring you back. And his statement is to the remnant. You shall stand before me. See, back in verse 17, they're standing alone. They're not in the assembly. That, that's the congregation. You heard a little bit about that in Sunday school. That's the word assembly. The church of mockers. That's that word. There it is. I won't sit in the church of mockers. But I'll stand alone. And then look at the preciousness. You're going to stand with the Lord. You see it? You shall stand before me. But here's the condition. The condition first was if you return, I'll bring you back. If you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. Here we are Surrounded by the vile. Surrounded by that which displeases God. And God says, you know what? You can't push the vile away. Um, the the vile has overcome this people, this nation, this land. The vile is everywhere. What you're going to have to do is extract what is good out of the vile that you can no longer press the vile away. I'll do that. I will cleanse the land. And this is where I have come to in my ministry in this land. There was a time 20 years ago, early in my ministry, where I was believing what our religious leadership was saying is that we need to take this land back for God. That we're going to do that by going out to the voting booths. We're going to do that by bringing revival to this land. But I think we, <laughs> that was foolishness. There's only one thing that can save this land, and that is the purging of God himself, And so we are called like Jeremiah, take the the precious out of the vial because there's no way you're going to remove the vial from your neighborhood. It's entrenched. The only thing that can burn it out is the wrath of God. And so it is for us to take the precious out of the vial, not to brush away the vial from the midst of the precious. It's time for us to stand alone, which means to stand away. Not that we are disinterested in reaching our people around us with the gospel. We are certainly looking for more to be added to the remnant. But it is an expectation of recognition that we are in a time and a season in this land that is well beyond reclamation. On a national level, we are well past it. And so we are reserved looking for slivers of, Of individuals to reclaim for Christ. Not a land, not a nation, a people. A little sliver of people who will say, We will eat of God's word and define ourselves by it. And we will stand alone for righteousness. We will take the precious out of the vile because we cannot eradicate the vile anymore. God says, They'll have to come to you. Don't you ever go to them. What a frightening passage. This is what it means to take the precious out of the vial. He says, um, and it's right there, it says, You shall be as my mouth. Once you, get, you, you can speak my words and the truth will be there. Once you have removed yourself from the surroundings of the wickedness that is defining your land... It says, let them return to you, but you must not return to them. Don't you go down back into that mire, back into the vial, and think that you would take my precious righteousness down into there and minister it it cannot be you must take this stand alone and you must hold this high ground and you must wait for them to come to you and you must call them to you but you do not go down and become like them to reach them and that is a lie the devil has sold to too many christians i have to go be like them to reach them hogwash you need to be like God to reach them for something different. You're going to have to stand alone. That's what we are called to. We're going to invite them to us. You're going to have to come out of the vial and come into the preciousness of this walk with Christ. I'm not going to crawl down into that muck and mire and laugh at your scoffing to God. And play with it with you. I'm not going to drink with you. I'm not going to play with you. I'm not going to do all that. I am not going to sully the preciousness that God has given me thinking I'm going to quote-unquote reach you by it. No, I'm going to stand alone in the truth and call you to come. You can come to me But by God's command, I cannot go down to you. Does that mean I'm not willing to reach them? No. I'm not going to go down into their world as one of them. As an undercover Christian. No. I will not laugh at your dirty jokes. I will not drink at that table. I will not participate in that Idolatry. I will not let that filth in my life just so I can teach you the gospel because it doesn't work. I take this stand and I take it alone and I tell you, here's the truth, and you're in the dark. Here's the light. Who do you think should move? You're in the sty. I am in the pleasant places of God. Who do you think should move? Too long we have thought we should move to them and become like them to reach them. And this is, again, error. Deliverance comes. God says, I'm going to set you up like a bronze wall. They're going to hate you for taking that position. They're going to hate you for clinging to the high ground to claiming it and calling them to it but you must stand and he says i'll make you a bronze wall i'll deliver you from the wicked i'll redeem you from the grip of the terrible he says i will save you i will deliver you but you have got to take this ground we all want the deliverance but we none of us want to claim the high ground we want to take the low road to the muck instead of the high road and the light So Jeremiah is given some instructions on how to do this. Don't have any kids, don't get a wife. And we find the final bookend. I knew it was going to be a lot to get in this morning, but I want to jump all the way to 13. It's not just because of the history, and we can look at that historically, where that evil mire has come from, and we can bemoan it all we want and, and claim that we're not responsible for it, but for Jeremiah, he confronts the people and he says, it's certainly in verse 11, uh, because your fathers have forsaken me, walked after other gods, served them, worshiped them, and forsaken me, and not kept my law. That's why all this is going to happen. But that's not the only reason it's going to happen. And verse 12. And again, this is a theme Throughout Jeremiah, you'll hear this phrase over and over. We've already seen it. And I want you to see the extent of this wickedness. You have done worse than your fathers. Chapter 15 talked about the horrific thing Manasseh did to Israel. And here's what God says. You've done worse than him. The only father mentioned in this passage is Manasseh, the very most wicked king in the history of Judah. That's the only forefather named in this whole section. And here's what he says about the people who are giving these false confessionals and saying, "How can you do this to us, God? You have done worse." than them. Why? Because each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. You do what you want to do. And again, in a brief conversation we with someone who claims to be a, Christ, a Christian, every excuse in the book for why he doesn't follow certain parts of the truth. Why? Because we all believe we should be able to do whatever we want. Worse than offering your children to the fire of Moloch. Worse than slaughtering babies. Worse than setting up idols in the house of God. Doing what you want to do instead of what God wants to do. Because this is the rebellion that will turn their back on God given any and every chance. Is a heart that says, I should be able to do what I want to do. I should be able to believe what I want to believe. You shouldn't be able to tell me how I should live my life, Pastor. You shouldn't have you shouldn't tell me those things that I don't want to hear. Okay. Do whatever is in your heart to do. But don't call it righteousness. And don't sit there and wonder why God seems so far from you. And why God's word is so meaningless to you. And why there's no power of God in your life, let alone in your testimony, in your ministry, quote-unquote... Because the fact is, you have done worse than the mire. And we do it our way and not follow God's. We are doing worse than the mire of this world. And that's how Manasseh was ultimately described. He did worse than the Canaanites in God's eyes. And now, Jeremiah is dealing with a generation that was worse than him. That's what God thinks about you, doing whatever is on your heart to do. Just do whatever you want. That's exactly the way the world was described right before the flood. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is the prevailing philosophy of our age, is it not? You do whatever you want it's right for you. And it is the worst kind of sin there is in the world. Because it means that now, how can you call it wrong to go in and blow up a building full of children? You have no premise to call that evil. You have no premise to call it evil. That was right in their eyes. We have no moral ground whatsoever. Once we have bought into, I can believe whatever I want to believe, you believe whatever you want to believe, and we'll all work it out in the end. That philosophy means that it is just fine and you cannot condemn any act of violence If someone simply says, it felt right to me to do. You have no moral ground at all to condemn any of it. And so I don't blame the Muslims. I blame a society globally that has bought into the philosophy that whatever I think is right in my eyes, I will do and hang the rest of you and hang God. I think it's right. That's why this is the most heinous sin on the planet. I'll figure it out. I'll, I know what's right and wrong. You don't have to tell me. And if I feel like going and shooting a cop, I'll go shoot a cop. If I want to go rape a few women, I'll go rape a few women. How can you condemn any of them? They did what was right in their own eyes. You see, the philosophy, live and let live, is not just and is not righteous and is not of God. It is a lie of Satan that throws us into more mire and vile and we are called to stand alone out of it. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your truth. Lord, help us not to grow weary of it or weary of teaching it. But Let us rejoice in it. Help us, Lord. Remind us of the remnant and let us be counted among their number. Lord, we're sorry when we have laughed with mockers of your name. We have place idols in our church when we have turned away from your word, from your truth, from your Son, and gone our own way. And Lord, we know that that confession can only be substantive if we repent and truly turn from that course to you. To your righteousness. And Lord, help us in that this day, each day. Lord, we thank you for that promised deliverance for those who will eat your word and rejoice in it and will stand alone. And Lord, our prayer is as we do that, that some might come to us out of the mire into the light even this week. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.